Welcome to the SPE Podcast. I'm Asha Robles, SPE's multimedia producer. Today, we're doing things a little differently and recapping our listeners' top podcast episodes from the past few months. We're starting the show off with our Nathan Meehan episode. He is the author of 2019's most downloaded One Petro paper, The End of Petroleum Engineering as We Know It, and the 2016 SPE president. In this episode, host Trent Jacobs explores the depths of the popular paper and looking for an answer to, should I pursue a career in petroleum engineering? So I, I wanted to get into this, the, this paper, the end of petroleum engineering as we know it. Uh, this is a super compelling headline from somebody who writes headlines. Good job. Uh, what does it mean? Well, first, it's not my prediction that petroleum engineering is over. It is a way to start this discussion about what petroleum engineering is going to evolve to. And I think it's the evolution and the needed changes we're going to have are a little more radical than some people think. I think that uh, the kind of petroleum engineering that I learned and that I spent much of my career doing is kind of a thing of the past. Okay, well, give me an example. What, what kind of changes are you, are you seeing coming down the pike? Well, the first and most compelling is related to the digital revolution. We are changing how we do business. We're changing uh, how we use engineers. AI is uh, sort of not quite there yet, and we're using it in certain ways, but my prediction here is that it's going to continue to augment and change what we do and how we approach it. The next, of course, is related to environmental issues, carbon management. Our industry is under pressure like it's never been under before. We're going to have potentially declining demand for some of our products. Uh, you know, we're going to have to compete with renewables. We're going to have to be cleaner. We're going to have to be more sustainable. We're going to have to figure out a way to actually capture carbon and lower our footprints. Otherwise, we're not going to attract the best and the brightest. For much of my career, it's been really easy to attract petroleum engineers, at least during the boom times. We were able to get the best students. We were able to, to attract uh, students from other industries, like you know, and as well as chemical engineers, mechanical engineers. We're not really seeing those students be as interested in petroleum engineering now. And unless we have a better model, uh, we're not going to be able to retain them and track them. Well, I heard you speak about this recently at an SB symposium, and, and it was really compelling uh, the way you, you outlined this, this, uh, this thesis. One of the things that stood out to me was that you, you said in your research, uh, these environmental concerns, which are mounting globally, uh, it seems like, you know, every day we, we sort of uh, get a new angle on, on that story. But that wasn't necessarily the number one reason that we were having trouble as an industry pulling in new recruits. Um, what was the number one reason that you found? Well, it's the cyclicity of demand for petroleum engineers and the huge number of layoffs that we have. It's, uh, it's really an, a problem that we've had for a long time when demand drops and when crude oil product prices drop, uh, people cut their expenses. And a lot of oil companies, major expenses, and particularly service companies, some of those are people. And we have shown a huge uh, ability to cut back on the number of employees and lay people off time and time again. 
uh, with increased productivity and, you know, sort of the number of engineers it takes to drill a given well to produce, you know, 100 wells or 1,000 wells, our, our willingness to fire people is just, caught, I think it's catching up with us. We, uh, I, I remember people asking me, why is it that employees are willing to quit and go to another company so readily? Don't they show any loyalty? When in fact, uh, oil companies and have not shown that same loyalty to the employees in many cases. They were very, very eager to, uh, not eager, uh, they were very willing to do what they needed to do, cut costs, and that included uh, cutting back on people. So we've had a long period now of relatively soft oil prices and very soft gas prices. And the demand for pers- you know people continues to drop. And, and so we've shown that... Uh, and because petroleum engineers are committed to sort of one industry, we have uh, we're particularly exposed there. If uh, if you were a mechanical engineer, or chemical engineer, you would have options if one industry uh, fell off. You know, electrical engineers used to a lot the electric power transmission and power generation people used to hire a lot of electrical engineers, but that industry has hired. Fewer and fewer electrical engineers, but double E majors have been able to go on and do something else, and the computational world and other things have grown and expanded for them. So as a result, double E has grown as a major, and people still have options when one industry uh, diminishes. We only have one industry, and as uh, every time we have a downturn, uh, the employment prospects drop and the enrollments in schools drops. We're seeing that now all across enrollment in the U.S. It's way down. You know, in your paper, you talk about cautionary tales from other engineering sectors. You just kind of, uh, you kind of teased that right there. Um, but you single out uh, mining engineering programs, and I think with an emphasis on coal mining engineering programs. Um, and you found 14 schools worldwide in your research offering mining engineering degrees undergrad enrollment in these schools was less than 500 and that was back in 2014 and only 200 graduates annually. So can you, can you tell me why these are relevant stats to a petroleum engineer? Right. Well, of course, petroleum, a mining engineer used to be much, much larger and mining engineering at one point was more or less tied with petroleum engineering as the highest paying uh, engineering graduates. Mining is another is very analogous to what petroleum engineers do. They are pretty much committed to one industry, although it doesn't matter whether you're mining tin or coal or, uh, you know, diamonds, they do more or less the same kind of extractive industries that we are in. They uh, also tie to geological understanding. There's a there's quite an analog, and a lot of schools where there are mining degrees actually have petroleum degrees, whether it's in... Leoben in Austria, or Colorado School of Mines, uh, Rolla. So these were very similar to us. And now while the mining industry has never been quite as large, the fact is mining itself has not declined in volumes. Mining, we mine more product out of the ground than we ever have in history. But we need less people to do that. There's only a handful of, of uh, mining uh, products whose prices are going up, chromium and some of the rare earth minerals. But most of the rest of them, the product prices remain soft, and the emphasis is on productivity, and 
they need fewer and fewer engineers to do the same work. They use a lot of high-tech stuff in mining. There are automated drilling rigs. There are, you know, they, they invented geostatistics. I think Rio, Rio Tinto gets brought up in this in- industry a lot. So for the people that don't know, that's the Australian mining magnet. And uh, in terms of automation, I don't, I, you know, very, very few companies, industrial companies come close to what Rio Tinto's done. That was JPT's Trent Jacobs interviewing 2016 SPE president, Nathan Meehan. Now we join SPE's Jason Notorious as he talks to Yogashree Pradhan, a reservoir engineer for Endeavor Energy Resources. They discuss how to market yourself and grow your career, and she shares tips and tricks to grow your network. I think one of the places you've been very successful in doing that is LinkedIn. And that's one of the big reasons we wanted to talk to you is about building your own brand online. And, and I think you've done a remarkable job positioning yourself as you know a reliable connection and is something, if you have any tips or advice that you could share with the listeners about strategy, did you have any from day one? Do you continue to evolve the strategy? How did you get into LinkedIn? It's interesting that you, that you asked that. I wanted to approach this where I didn't want to prescribe on what people should do because I think people should be comfortable with the strategy that they take. So I want to go ahead and start with my, my own experiences I go back to my first mentor. One of the first things he suggested me to do before my spring internship in high school was to get a LinkedIn profile and learn to build my network. Then I got the opportunity to go to SP events in the Gulf Coast section and attend a couple conferences and short courses. So someone who's a senior in high school going into these short courses and never have taken a college class in petroleum engineering before, I was way in over my head. But the good thing was, is that I was able to meet many professionals to keep in touch with on on LinkedIn. I asked a lot of questions to help me get some context in these technical events. I kept that practice in university and afterwards, and I continued to keep in touch with people. Maintaining those relationships ended up having the mentors that I had introduce me to other professionals in the industry. I also learned from other oil and gas professionals and other career development events in university on how to build my brand, joining groups that I like, following industry experts and reading their posts and then sharing some of my interests on LinkedIn were, were some of the things that worked for me. So it's a combination of attending SP events, maintaining relationships and actively searching learning material that helped me. That's a really good breakdown. I also like when professionals are sharing their articles, you find on LinkedIn, people are a little bit more open. I don't know about you, I get probably a solid five to 10 connection requests a day and I feel bad. And this is advice that I actually got from one of my mentors that said that if you're going to connect with someone on LinkedIn, make sure you include that personal note so they know where they met you, whether it was at a training seminar or if it was at a luncheon or a conference. And so I think if you're looking to connect with people on LinkedIn, that's just one of my personal tips. Is there something that you've seen or you've come across that you've kind of run into when it comes to connecting with someone that you want to share? Well, Jason, you, you hit the, you hit the main points where whenever you do make a LinkedIn request, it's very important to make sure you provide that personal note or at least provide a reminder that you've, that, that you've met that, that you've, you've met that connection or you've met that person at a conference or an event, or if it's an article someone's posted and that you haven't met before, I mean, I still think you can go ahead and send a connection request, but make sure to add a note, uh, 
addressing that intention of where that connection request came from, that perhaps you can learn a lot from that person who has who has shared that article, or perhaps you have a question about a paper that they've written and you 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 wanted to get more context of that of that SPE paper or the article that they that they recently published, but making sure of of of, of why you're intending to connect with that person, I also agree that's important. So Yogashree, do you find yourself branding yourself differently online versus in person? So let, let's imagine a scenario. Uh, you're about to speak on a panel. Do you promote yourself on LinkedIn before, after, during? How does that message differ from the language and the verbiage you'll be using to speak at the event? What changes do you usually implement? I try to be consistent, whether if I'm online or in person. And it's a privilege to get invited to speak on, on panels. If, if it's a conference or if it's a panel where I'll be meeting people that I've not met in a while, I do post on LinkedIn before the event. If I haven't gotten the chance to catch up with people that I've connected with on LinkedIn, I post after as well. I try to sound conversational on LinkedIn and during a panel. And of course, I'll have to add more explanation or address a larger audience on social media than during a live event. It also depends on the type of event. Most events I've had the privilege being on a panel for is for university students sharing my story on networking and how to get internships. The content and therefore the language would be different compared to when I'm on a technical panel. I do want to add that work experience ranges of the audience is much larger when, when you're on a technical panel. Yeah, and I think that's a smart approach to take um, almost altering the language to your audience versus maybe the platform as much. So routines are important for, for many of us. Uh, I, I personally find them to be pretty big time savers. Walk us through one of your favorite routines and how it kind of helps you set up your procedure and how you're going to operate. For communications, I have a couple routines, one in for in-person and the one for online communication. So I'll start with in-person. If it's someone I know, I start with a request or a comment that I need some help or I need some guidance. I also mentioned that I would like to bounce ideas or seek someone's input. At the end of the conversation, I summarize what the resolve is or if I gave myself homework to do, uh, I'll set those action items for myself. Um, if it's someone I don't know, I'd make the introduction and start with a question based on a talk that person gave or if we have a mutual connection. I'm an active listener where if I'm explaining something new, I make sure to regurgitate the response to make sure I understood the answer. I make sure to follow the standard networking protocol, business cards and follow communication I personally need to keep up with my email follow-up, but that's where the LinkedIn connection request comes in handy. If it's an email, whether if I met them in person or, or before or not, I start with why I'm emailing to keep myself focused on the message. I also make it clear that I would like feedback, input, or, or a response from the communication. And if it's someone I don't know from the email, I make sure to introduce myself and give context of how I got their email address or remind them which event that we, that we met at. And has this approach changed over time at all? I mean, I know time's kind of relative, but in between three years ago versus last year versus even three months ago, have you adapted along the way? I have adapted quite a bit. I was, I, with different work experiences and communication styles, I learned how to adapt to, to different or to different forms of communication, whether if it's online or whether it fits in person or on LinkedIn. And I had to learn how to picture myself in the shoes of the recipient 
Like what information do they know? What do they not know? And then after transitioning from high school to university, the, the audience is of course broader because students, faculty, and of course recruiters, they don't all come from Houston. And finally, I got checkpoints in every internship and full-time job, like I talked about before. They, they were all different environments, different locations, different communication styles. So I learned by experience when the people sought more clarification, whether if it's in person or whether if it's through email. And I also learned how to seek clarification if I didn't understand something at first hand. So you're saying checkpoints, clarification, and walking in someone else's shoes. See, I, I can regurgitate too and make sure that, that I use one of your tips from earlier in making sure that you're responding with what the, what the people are saying. You're right on. <laughs> SPE is proud to offer a mentoring program for both mentors and mentees. E-mentoring is a distance mentoring program that gives members a way to contribute to the ENP industry by sharing industry insights and practical career advice with young professionals, or by helping university students with academic and career direction. Young professionals also have the unique opportunity to serve as mentors to students. A six-month connection allows members and mentees to communicate electronically at their convenience. Learn more at spe.org e-mentoring. Welcome back to the show. You just heard from Yogashree Pradhan and how to effectively market yourself and grow in your career. For our next discussion, JPT's Trent Jacobs talks to petroleum geoscience innovator Andrew Pepper about his take on how unconventional reservoir evaluation can be improved. So we got you in here today because, you know, you really you recently published some interesting work on the subject of uh, fluid saturation. And one of your papers in the title, it said uh, fluid saturation isn't what it used to be. And and what you're talking about is, is tight mudstones or shale. And this paper that I'm talking about that I wanted to dig into was presented at the Unconventional Resources Technology Conference in Denver. Uh, that's Ertech 196 for you folks uh, who want to go on to One Petro. One of your co-authors was uh, with Anna Darko. Um, and it was a really interesting paper. Your work addresses the issue of recovery factors. And so I wanted to kick off with a question about that. Since I came into this business, um, it, was, it became clear to me that recovery factors have been a subject of mystery for the shale sector. We often hear figures like 5 or 10% of the oil in place is being recovered from a horizontal well. But then there's this big question, what is really being drained? Is that 5% from a big box or is that 5% from a little box? Why has this issue been such a challenge? Yeah, I, I think really the, the short answer is that the you know the the mobile oil in place that we appreciate is 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 being overestimated and it, it's wrong in many cases. Uh, and, and I'm talking about organic rich reservoirs. So so the kind of core evaluation techniques that we've been using in conventionals have been uh, through necessity very rapidly adapted from previously shale gas analysis and also. In many cases, just simply ported from the conventional world and, and adapted as best as possible. You're talking about core analysis to yeah, some yeah, yeah. large to, extent. To, to core, core analysis met methodologies. I'm lucky enough to have a, a unique perspective in being able to look back to the 80s in the lab, was doing some of the work that I think is relevant to this subject. And so I think uh, in, in that in that sort of uh, rush to to try and understand this new phenomenon, we kind of forgot some of the principles that that perhaps you know would have been commonplace to people who studied source rocks for the conventional petroleum system back in the 80s and 90s. And so what I've been doing is drawing, drawing on, that, on that understanding. And, and I think all the, all the major companies, BP, 
where I was, uh, Shell and Exxon did formative work in this area of understanding the desorbed hydrocarbons, and, that, and that's really a key to, to the argument. Can you touch on that and talk about the sorbed hydrocarbons? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. In a water-wet pore system, in the mineral matrix system, uh, and there are some cartoons in the in the Ertec paper to try and explain this, then the petroleum exists as a phase, and it's separated from the water phase by the interfacial tension around that phase boundary between the two the two fluids. Uh, when we introduce organic-rich material, which is where the, the molecules are actually generated in the first place in the organic matrix, then there's, there's really two processes. One is absorption, which is the essentially the dissolution of molecules within this complex framework. So you can think of molecules trapped in molecular cages within this complex structure of kerogen. And then the other part of it is perhaps well better underappreciated, which, which is uh, adsorption, which is which is the molecules that are adhere to the, the surface of the true pore system. So together, these things, I, we're not smart enough, I don't think, right now to understand how to separate those two phenomena. But together, it basically means that the, the, the there's an amount of, of, of petroleum molecules in a, an organic-rich rock that are part of the solid phase of that organic matter. Mm-hmm. So they shouldn't be counted as, as fluid molecules and given the, uh, the, the term saturation, because the term saturation, in my view, should be reserved for the mobile hydrocarbons and how they, how they compete with the water phase for, for production. So, so in a nutshell, you're really challenging even the definition of uh, the original oil in place here, you know, that, that, we're, that we're, we're lumping in oil that will never come out of the ground with oil that will. Yeah, and the problem we have is that the laboratory techniques we have, they don't differentiate this. So, so solvents do not care whether they're extracting these molecules from the, from the organic framework or whether they're producing a, uh, you know, they're, they're recovering a fluid phase that's present in the rock. Obviously, if we have a, a, an organic lean rock, say that say the middle bakken or perhaps some of the, the sandy, silty beds in the bone spring that are just sort of tight conventional reservoirs, mm-hmm. then the sorption process, because there's very little organic matter there, is not an issue. So we're not... I'm not trying to say all of the all, every single uh, shale or unconventional reservoir is a problem, but the more organic rich the reservoir is, the more we need to think about the sorption process and make this subtraction from the total solvent extractable oil in place or, or, or the pyrolyzable uh, or retort oil in place. All of these all of these measures they just give us a bulk number of molecules, and it's and, it, and then we have to partition them into which molecules belong in the solid phase and are not mobile and which which belong in the fluid phase and, and are part of the mobile fluid system. Right. And it's interesting you mentioned the Bone Spring, which is, you know, one of the popular targets out in the uh, in the Permian. And I just saw a gun barrel stratigraphic completion kind of a or landing zone targets from from one of the big operators out there. And it was clear just to look at their their gun barrel that they had a different completion style. Uh, it was more geometric for the Bone Spring, which you can get away with as what you're kind of saying uh, versus the Wolf Camp A, which is much tighter. And uh, they had a, a much more customized approach to the target zones and the, or the landing zones for those wells. So that, that may speak to what you're talking about. But what this, what this comes down to is something that we kind of touched on earlier, which is uh, recovery factors. And, and what, you're, what you're arguing in your, in your URTEC paper is that recovery factors may actually be higher than we think. So does that suggest that the, that the reservoir matrix is not really a huge contributor to production? One, and one reason why I ask that is because I've heard experts bandy this idea about that, uh, that they think the rock matrix is actually only producing into the wellbore just a few inches from the face of the fracture. Uh, does your work support that concept, that idea? 
Yeah, so if our, if our estimates of, of absolute rock permeability are about right, then, then yes, there should be very little drawdown of the, of the virgin matrix pore system, you know, quite close to the, quite close to the induced uh, natural fractures. Um, I mean, this is really not, not, not my field, but, uh, but I hear some workers uh, think that the, the frac process itself disturbs the grain boundaries, even though it doesn't necessarily create a discrete fracture away from the, from the, from the induced fracture system. Somehow you're kind of rubbleizing or, 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 or altering the, the permeability at the grain contacts of the surrounding material. So in, in a sense, it would make, it, that makes sense in, in terms of inducing a permeability that will allow you to drain deeper into the rock matrix than, than it would be if you're just relying on the virgin uh, permeability itself of the, of the host rock. Follow-up question here. Does that bleed into this idea of uh, fracture complexity because you're getting more surface area? Um, and that's, and when, when I say fracture face, I'm meaning the, the actual rock that's, that's exposed to the matrix and to the open system uh, where the uh, prop and pack is to allow flow to happen. And so the more of that you create because you're not going to get these, this oil to travel very far out of the rock, that's that's what's becoming critical to to uh, develop with your fracks. As I say, not my not my 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 field, but but it is my belief. Yes, the the, the fracks are doing a in that sense a much better job than we ever imagined. And 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 you know, for those of us that worked on source rocks back in the in the early eighties and nineties, uh, you know, on on how how the oil gets out on a geological time scale, it's just amazing. That was JPT's Trent Jacobs talking with petroleum geoscience innovator, Andrew Pepper. To hear more about this topic, visit the SPE podcast. Now we dive into one of the highlights from the 2020 Hydraulic Fracturing Technology Conference with Mike Rainbow, an experienced completions engineer and a senior technical advisor for Abra Controls. He gives us some insights on major advances around the so-called parent-child issues that all U.S. shell producers face. You, you were an author on, on one of these update papers with Endeavor, right? And uh, which is a, a shale producer in uh, the Permian Basin. Yes, the uh, lead author was uh, Yvonne Schurz, and the paper number is 199686. And what we did uh, two years ago is we had a 22 well observation monitoring project, and we took those learnings and, and uh, used uh, that to plan for uh, fracture mitigation. In, in this new project and Endeavor was very successful doing that. As far as preloading, that is beginning to, to achieve some popularity. Of course, the concerns I'm hearing from operators is the expense of doing it and the, and the amount of, uh, you know, the success they're having in dampening or, or subduing FDIs. You can't stop them, but you can, you can uh, slow them down and reduce their overall impact. Right, and FDIs, we're talking about fracture-driven interactions. Uh, that's the, sort of the new technical term for what is colloquially known as frac hits, but, you know, some, you know, some people just call it fracture interference. Um, but tell me a little bit more about just sort of the, you know, how you see how preloads work. Cause I, I sort of, I think we've all had to come up with like a mental image of, of how preloading works, but, um, early when Pete, when operators started coming out about it, they were saying that, you know, we were actually really unable to model some of this sometimes in, in commercial models because it is so unique. So what do you think, uh, wh why do you think preloading works? And is that even like the right term calling it preloading? Is that the one that's going to stick? Yes, uh, there's there's actually a couple of different ways you can you can preload, which means that you inject a certain amount of fluid into your well pre-frac, 
And then there's the one that uh, a company called Abraxas is using, which is injection on demand, in which they do preloading, and then they have pumps rigged up to where they can uh, continue the injection when they see a pressure inflection occur in the offsetting well. The third type is continuous injection, and I actually have a client that, that did a side-by-side comparison of preloading versus continuous injection to see which technique was the most effective. And the goal of preloading and uh, and continuous injection, really it's one, to protect the wellbore, the existing wellbore from sand influx or outright, outright casing damage like you see in SP paper 191712. The other thing is they're trying to protect the existing assets, uh, reserves, and production rate. And number three, and this one is getting more and more popular, is using the, the preloading or the continuous injection to enhance the effectiveness of the stimulation in the new well. And I have seen cases where the new well is performing better by preloading than it did without it. In fact, 191712, that's, that was its main uh, point was they were using it to get uh, enhanced production from the new wells. Man, I have a lot of questions about preloading, and and yes, I, I've seen actually with my own eyes the active defense, uh, or what you're calling uh, the on-demand preloading uh, from Abraxas, and it's and it's just it's super you know it's actually super frustrating to be on the surface um at a completion site when you're really uh always thinking about what's happening down two miles below but what so but let's open that up i mean why why is this working is it is it creating a pressure shield are we talking about stress changes um uh pore pressure changes how how does the just putting water down really really uh, uh mitigate or uh help keep fractures um in the productive zone that operators are are really trying to target this, this technique, uh, and I was in a course yesterday with Ali Donashi, and he's pointing out this, these preloads and injections really work with wells that have mostly liquid-rich reservoirs like oil and water with little, very little gas because liquids are less compressible, much less compressible than gas is. And what happens when you preload or inject is that you're actually, uh, at, Chevron actually calls it pushing back where you're, you have an incompressible fluid in there and you're putting enough resistance so that migrating fluids from the new well uh, run into resistance and cannot uh, overcome what you're, you're pu- pumping into the, to the old well. And that's, that's the basis of the techniques. You're, you're, you're just basically fighting water with water, as the Abraxas article said, or you're making something that it's more difficult for the invading fluids to reach your old well or, or invade their fracture systems. Um, you know, I want to talk about the, the cost because, you know, this is sort of when, when you talk to new adopters, that's that's one of like the first things they say is is they talk about, you know, trying to like, well, OK, we're starting here, but we want to sort of bring things down. So what are the cost drivers? Uh, what are the things that the companies who have been doing this for one to two to three years? What have they learned on on how to sort of scale this? Well, let's let's talk about the easy one first, and that's preventing sand influx into well into uh, wells. This is pretty popular in the uh, Bakken reservoir, and also uh, places like the Eagleford, where it's it's not uncommon to have to do a two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollar cleanout after new well frac ops. And so, I mean, if they you can get as high as half a million, you so. can, you can, and that's and that's with no wellbore damage, like stuck tubing or something else. So, the say the the cost potential of not having to do a, a cost a cost clean out is well worth the preloading and preventing that. In fact, that's that's why Braxis is doing their injections is strictly to, to prevent uh, sand influx 
sometimes they see a little bump in production too. But the uh, the three hundred fifty thousand to, as you said, five hundred thousand dollar cleanout jobs are prohibitively expensive. Yeah, and and so. So, but but what is what is the water total usage? Because you know one one of the things that uh, made Braxis a little bit special in this regard was they had their own um, uh, produced water you know system on on that lease, and so they actually were able to control water cost very much. But what have you seen in terms of water usage, um, and just in you know even ballpark or or general terms, are people starting high and then going down low uh, to reduce costs and see if they can still get the same sort of protection? Oh, that's that's a great question. Here in SBE 191712, the, the, the technique was this. First order well, first order offset well received 20,000 barrel preload. The second order offset well received 10,000 barrel load. I'm working with operators right now that uh, typically 30 to 50,000 barrels per well. And in the case, in the one case of continuous injection that I know of, uh, we pumped 170,000 barrels of water into that from about three weeks prior to the beginning of frac ops until the end of frac, uh, frac ops. And we did that in accordance with the uh, Huntington Beach, California technique in which you pump it low and slow and every 10,000 barrels you shut down and measure ISIP. We saw a beautiful increase in ISIPs with time and uh, the, the technique was quite successful. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, the Huntington Beach. That was a, a workshop. What was it now? Two years ago, uh, a, a fracture driven interaction mitigation workshop uh, over there in California. And and it, uh, I, you know, I wasn't there, but everybody that was always always brings it up. Uh, but I'll, I'll do the shameless plug. I mean, that's why uh, being in these rooms um, and and being a part of the SBE and, and a part of the discussion is so important for people. Um, if you're if you're engaged uh, anywhere in the world, whether it's China, Argentina, or the U.S. or Canada or Russia in, in hydraulic fracturing, uh, you know, being in, in you know uh, in these dialogue sessions is uh, is something that could actually shorten your your learning curve by years. You know, you know, maybe not ten years, but maybe two or three. Um, and so, so can you just comment on that? You know, uh, on how you you know reflecting on what you saw at the conference um, the other week. You know, are people catching on to these things uh, pretty steadily and learning from each other? How is that knowledge transfer working? Uh, that uh, that's a that's a great comment. Uh, just briefly, at, at Huntington Beach, one of the things, two things that they stressed was that poor cement around your pipe can cause uh, can really reduce the number of clusters that you form uh, during your during during the stages. The other thing they mentioned was extreme limited entry perforating, and shortly after that, I noticed operators were sort of reluctant to uh, consider the limited entry perforating, but at the HTFC this time, I ran into a number of operators that they are, that they are migrating towards the limited entry technique with ever shorter cluster spacing uh, to improve cluster efficiency, to improve uh, fluid distribution, and this tremendously helps uh, mitigate uh, fracture-driven interactions because you don't have one or two really long fractures that are, that are uh, as I say, leaving the reservation and going way under other wells that uh, have no benefit to either the old wells that they're in contacting or to the new well. Yeah, I've heard them called the runways. A resource for every stage of your ENP career. You can take yourself to greater depths right from your desktop with SPE Online Education. Whether you prefer live or on-demand training, join our industry experts as they explore solutions to real problems and discuss trending topics. Learn more at webevents.spe.org.
Welcome back to the show. You just heard from experienced completions engineer, Mike Rainbow. We end the show in a discussion with none other than 2020 SPE president, Shauna Noonan. She sits down with SPE's Jason Notoris and talks about strengthening ways to disseminate knowledge. To collect, exchange, and disseminate technical knowledge, they're not only the first seven words of SPE's mission, it's what we've excelled at, and it serves as a key differentiator between our society and other industry groups. You know, our technical content, it's available in various forms, such as manuscripts, journal articles, newsletters, webinars, you know. In my October article, it stressed the importance of ensuring that this content is high in technical quality, but unfortunately, even high-quality content will gather dust if not being used by our membership, which has gone through a huge demographic shift in just a decade. If we were to compare from 2008 to 2018, the peak percentage age range of our professional membership has gone from that range being uh, 50 to 54 years. So basically a good chunk of our professional membership is over the age of 40. And in 2018, that peak age range was 30 to 34 years. So now a good portion of our professional membership, they're under the age of 40. And there's just more than age difference between these two groups. And you have a great graph to illustrate that point. You look down at this thing, and it really is like your eyes are taking in a mountain range, the way that the numbers have sharply changed over the past decade. Are you noticing the differences in this when you're out in your travels? I definitely do. You know, as I've been visiting sections and student chapters, just not as president now, but over the past few years, I have consistently asked three questions and I asked for a show of hands in response. First question is one, how many of you read JPT? Mm-hmm. Two, how many read papers from one Petro? And to the students, and then I also say, and when it wasn't an assignment. <laughs> and then three, how many people have watched an SPE webinar? And what are you seeing from that? Well, it's usually our more senior members that raise their hands to these questions. And Depending where I am in the world, I may get half or much fewer hands being raised uh, in the room. And it's because there's a difference in the average age in our professional membership between regions. And regions with a higher average age obviously have a higher number of members that remember a world before home computers. I know I remember even when computers first showed up in the workplace and I have to, at the time it wasn't so funny, but I remember my employer at the time, once computers showed up in the workplace, they remained in the hallways. We all had to share because it was firmly believed by management that there will never be a day when engineers will have their own computers in their offices because there'll be no productivity whatsoever. (laughs) Regions with a lower average age now, you know, obviously they have a higher number of members who now never even experienced a world without computers. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, so it's more than an age range. It's this huge generation gap. And the students that are entering university now, f- forget just them not being a world without computers. They've never known a world without smart handheld devices and Google. You know, they're the Google generation. And 
all three groups, they access information differently and they have different needs in terms of retaining that information. Yeah. And I'm glad that you're bringing this up because in this, in no way, in my mind is a bad thing because most generational groups really, they don't change. And it's not because they don't want to. It's if you grew up with something. I mean, I don't use a home computer because I didn't really grow up with a home computer. For me, a laptop or a tablet or a cell phone is all I need. In five to 10 years, my daughter may look at me like, what's a laptop? Why are you using that? I mean, we don't know where the technology is going to end up taking us, but we do know that these generational groups, they do have a process. Sometimes it could just be we as an organization or as a society who, who need to change to better reach and connect with them. This is something that SPE started acknowledging pretty openly in the early 2000s. We did, and but still there was a huge f- faction or mindset that, oh, we'll still get them to change, right? They'll adapt to the way we train. But, you know, it, it was uh, our 2005 president, Giovanni Paccoloni, you know, he was a champion for the new millennial generation that was coming in, and he led the creation of the Young Professionals Program as a way to attract and retain them into SBE and the industry, actually. And then, you know, 10 years later, you know, our 2015 president, Helge Halderson, he championed what he called SBE 2.0, which was to have all of our programs across their society to revise and modernize in order to keep pace with the relevancy of the industry. Webinars were being created and more of SBE's tools were made accessible via the SBE website. This generation are still changing and now the digital revolution, it's, it's taken our industry by storm. You've heard the term industry 4.0, the internet mm-hmm. of things. And now the Generation Zs, there you caught me, my Canadian, Generation (laughs) Zs, Generation Zs, they've entered our universities and they've joined our student chapters. And their needs are considerably different than the generations before them, even the millennials. And SPE must adapt the way we deliver and format our technical content for them. So there's a strong value for them to continue their SPE membership once they transition from being a student member to a professional post-graduation. Now, the Generation Z students, sorry, and there's, I'm Canadian, I'm going to keep calling them Generation Z. They will from now on fill the classrooms and they expect a teaching environment in which they can interact in a similar way that they do in their virtual world. You know, this implies a demand for instant information, visual forms of learning, and replacing communication with interaction. And what I've just mentioned, it's actually a quote from one of many studies about teaching environments needing to change. And as a mom, I've already seen this change occur with the education provided to my children. Now I have one daughter in her second year at university and a second daughter who will be entering university next fall. Most of their textbooks are online their teachers record short short videos covering the lesson material for them to watch at home. So when they get to the classroom, the time is spent in discussion and reinforcing what was covered in the videos and the online textbooks. And then for my children, if they want to learn something on their own, they typically turn to YouTube to watch a video or they go and listen to podcasts for the audio. I can't remember a time when I didn't see them with an earpiece in their ear 
you know, typically listening to podcasts and they may be listening to music, but it, it's, it, it's something of norm to them now. It's something we're still trying to understand, you know, podcasts, they've exploded in popularity over the past several years and I'm thrilled. And I like to say myself, along with some of my fellow members, we kind of help nudge SBE in this direction of doing the podcast they can be easily inserted into our daily lives, such as during one's commute to school or work, waiting at the doctor's office, or, well, even to board a plane. You know, I personally enjoy listening to a variety of industry podcasts when I'm walking my dogs to keep me up to date on current events or listening to interviews with experts and executives. And actually, most recently, yesterday, folding laundry is not a glamorous task to do, and Instead of listening to music, I opted to listen to one of SBE's podcasts. So I don't know if it's a, a complimentary or not, but George King, you really helped make laundry folding so much better yesterday. I appreciate that very much. <laughs> there you go, George. Mission accomplished. <laughs> there you have it. Our recap of podcasts we and our listeners enjoyed in the past few months. To listen to these podcasts in their entirety, visit the SPE podcast today. We hope you enjoy the SPE podcast and take away something useful to your job and career along the way. Your feedback is welcome, along with ideas for topics you would like to see us cover in future podcasts. You can send your feedback to podcast at spe.org. Like what you're hearing? Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. We love reading what you have to say. You can also get connected with SPE on all social media outlets. Just use the hashtag SPE podcast.